From Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. Corporate media may do their best to vote shame or silence third-party candidates, but veteran activist Howie Hawkins of the Green Party and Gloria LaRiva of the Party for Socialism and Liberation are speaking loud and clear. We are a very wealthy country. We should be, instead of a global military empire, the world's humanitarian superpower and make friends instead of enemies. And that'll do more for the peace and security of Americans and everybody around the world than this uh, emphasis on the military, which is also one of the industries that is the most polluting and emitting the most carbon. When socialism is under attack, they stand up and fight back. This is why we're not getting any major media coverage. I mean, it's not an accident. It's not that they don't know us. They do not want the message of taxing the super rich, taking over their wealth, taking over the banks for social investment. It is really remarkable how receptive people are. All that and much more coming up. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. These days leading to November 3rd bear the marks of an election season like no other. Donald Trump continues to characterize legal voting as voter fraud. He says his hastily confirmed Supreme Court Judge Amy Coney Barrett, sworn in a week before the election, will throw out mail-in ballots. And even as COVID-19 is on pace to kill a quarter of a million people inside the U.S. before the end of November, Trump jokes about media coverage of the coronavirus and touts his own recovery, which was accomplished at taxpayer expense and with treatments not available to most Americans. All you hear is COVID, 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 COVID. That's all they put on because they want to scare the hell out of everyone. On the other hand, Democratic nominee Joe Biden could not finish a thought about the latest fatal shooting of a black man, Walter Wallace, by police in Philadelphia without somehow making scattered acts of looting equal to that deadly state violence. Biden stumps for the votes of frackers while distancing himself from the Green New Deal or anything that sounds like free health care as a human right in the midst of a pandemic. More about these ideas later in the show. In D.C., Black Lives Matter, the Palm Collective, and other D.C. groups are continuing to protest the police-involved death of Karan Hilton, whose rented scooter was involved in a crash on October 23rd while he was being chased by the Metropolitan Police in Northwest D.C. It is against policy for police to chase anyone riding a scooter, and the incident is being investigated. Police said they stopped Hilton because he was not wearing a helmet, And at a series of demonstrations this week, protesters, including Hilton's family members, were pepper sprayed by police who also used flashbang grenades and a helicopter against the crowd. And those in the crowd questioned the numbers of police and the equipment being used to squash these small protests. This is one man protesting at the 4th District Precinct this week on Georgia Avenue in Northwest D.C. We out here protesting peacefully. They are still ready to go to war. Get 
Stick in his hand, ready to do because I have a sound in my hand, and I'm protesting peacefully. At first, they had it like they was ready to swing, ready to swing a nice thing because I have a sign in my hand, a sign, and this is your nation's capital, Uptown Washington D.C. Also in D.C., our local elections are providing a clinic in the divide between the neoliberal establishment and emerging progressive politicians, with support from groups such as labor unions and the Bernie Sanders-initiated Our Revolution. Those on the left are building a winning coalition to compete for seats on the D.C. Council, with a crowded field of 23 people vying for two seats. Ed Lazaire, longtime activist and founding executive director of the D.C. Fiscal Policy Institute. And incumbent council member Robert White are teaming up with a mass mailing sent to voters, hoping to stand out as two candidates who will fight for racial justice, fair wages, affordable housing, and health and safety for workers. I asked Ann Wilcox, also an at-large candidate for the D.C. statehood Green Party, about the dynamics of the race, which includes Facebook ads by former council member and candidate Vincent Orange. Attacking Lazier for "quote unquote" far left policies. Vincent Orange, and he's been the one that says, "Oh, we're going to have a control board back if we don't stop yeah. spending and spending money for COVID relief." Uh, and Ed Lazier is saying, "No, we need to take care of people now. This is a crisis moment. We need to keep people from being evicted and make sure they have, uh, you know, jobs and unemployment and those kinds of things, so that people aren't displaced." Right. So that's what Ed's saying. And then Will Merrifield, he's a housing activist, mm-hmm. and he actually calls for what's called social housing, which is a model of people living in oh, sort yeah, of yeah. yeah communal groups, and each pays a third of their income, and that's how the housing is is financed. So Will supports this. Um, I, there's a guy named Marcus Goodwin who's running, and he actually works for a developer, but he's saying he's going to develop affordable housing. But he's trying to kind of have it both ways because he does work for a developer, yeah. and he's also got the sort of the green team behind him. He's got uh, Lightfoot and the mayor's uh, people behind him. So it's sort of like Ed Lazier uh, Vin- and Vincent Orange and Goodwin are the main sort of protagonists, I guess you'd say. And a lot of the other candidates like Monica Palacio and Claudia Barragan, they they are say positive things about, you know, opposing gentrification mm-hmm. and building more affordable housing, but unfortunately it's such a crowded field that we just have way too many candidates running. <laughs> DC's election also includes an initiative to decriminalize nature. Chantal James has more. During this election, D.C. voters will have the chance to vote on Initiative 81, a measure that would make entheogenic plants and fungi among the Metropolitan Police Department's lowest law enforcement priorities. The Campaign to Decriminalize Nature D.C. submitted the voter initiative to the D.C. Board of Elections with thousands of signatures. On the night before the start of early voting, Decriminalized Nature DC held a virtual rally, ending the drug war, Initiative 81. Organizers shared stories of how they had been healed by these stigmatized substances and told of how they and their communities had been personally devastated by the war on drugs here in Washington DC. Adam, treasurer for the campaign, had these words on the urgency of this next step in ending the war on drugs. If there's such a demand in our society for these substances, it's because they're probably benefit, benefiting someone, or even if they're not benefiting someone, 
there's got to be a better way than just saying, well, if you procure it, you're a criminal. It touches my heart to see us like moving in the right direction with this. And the voters are, from what we're hearing, are very supportive of this initiative. And this is probably because so many people have actually had their lives touched by drug addiction and incarceration and the violence that can be associated with the whole underworld that, that's, that deals in drugs because there's no legal, lawful regulation. Frank Barr, a native Washingtonian and film producer who works with the campaign, told of the toll the war on drugs had taken on family members in wards 5 and 8 during the 80s in his appeal to vote yes on Initiative 81, saying that many lives would not have been lost if laws had been different. For On the Ground, this is Chantal James. Some international stories that we are following. The watchdog group Air War says that since Trump took office, U.S. actions in Yemen have killed between 86 and 154 civilians, including at least 28 children and 13 women. Chileans voted 4-1 to to replace the existing constitution crafted from the era of U.S.-backed fascist dictator Augusto Pinochet. Venezuela President Nicolas Maduro said that an attack on an oil refinery in that country was a terrorist attack. And former Bolivian President Evo Morales, who was ousted in the U.S.-backed right-wing coup last year, announced his plan to return to Bolivia from forced exile on November 11th. And former U.K. labor leader Jeremy Corbyn vows to fight his suspension from the party over a controversial report labeling him and his longtime advocacy for the Palestinian people as anti-Semitic. On the environment, Greenpeace is warning that Japan's plan to dump tons of radioactive water from the failed Fukushima nuclear plant poses potential damage to human DNA. In Siberia, scientists have found evidence that frozen methane deposits in the Arctic Ocean have started to be released over a large area of the East Siberian coast. These methane deposits are known as the sleeping giants of the carbon cycle because methane is many times more concentrated than carbon dioxide. And here in the U.S., American environmentalists are vowing to fight a Trump plan just announced to open the country's largest national park, Alaska's Tongass National Forest, to clear-cut logging. And finally, while we fight for our future, Thomas O'Rourke has some notes on the past. On October 27, 1891, African-American inventor Philip B. Downing received a patent on a device he called a street letterbox, the predecessor of today's mailbox. A year before, Downing patented an electrical switch for railroads that allowed railroad workers to fully control power to trains. Based on Downey's design, others later created electrical switches, such as light switches, used every day in the home. On October 29, 1929, the New York stock market crashed as over 16 million shares were dumped amid tumbling prices. The Great Depression followed in America and worldwide, lasting in many countries until the outbreak of World War II. Unemployment in this country reached as high as 25% in 1932, causing outbreaks of working-class militancy and struggle, which forced the Roosevelt administration to press for deeper reforms, including the Social Security Act establishing 
a mass pension system, and the Wagner Act, recognizing many basic rights of labor, including the right to organize. On October 25, 1983, the Reagan administration launched the invasion of the tiny Caribbean island of Grenada, ostensibly to restore order and democracy and prevent a Soviet-Cuban colony. American military forces seized control of the island in an overt effort to combat America's Vietnam syndrome by gaining, after a four-day military campaign, an easy victory to feed American perceptions and appetites for renewed military hegemony. And finally, finally, for activists, November 3rd will be a day of action as well as voting. Shut Down D.C. is among the groups sponsoring the event November 3, After You Vote, Hit the Streets, planned to be all day and, and night on Black Lives Matter Plaza near the White House. Check out November 3, After You Vote, Hit the Streets on Facebook. And those are headlines and happenings. Stay with us. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. Well, in these tumultuous days leading to the presidential election, Donald Trump entertains at his rallies with jokes about media coverage of the coronavirus, even as the disease is on pace to kill a quarter of a million people inside the U.S. before the end of November. He continues to encourage voter suppression, says his Supreme Court nominee will throw out mail-in ballots and urges crowds to mock Michigan's Governor Gretchen Whitmer, the target of a right-wing terror plot. The Democratic nominee Joe Biden cannot finish a sentence about the latest murder of a black man by police in Philadelphia without somehow making scattered acts of looting equal to deadly state violence. Biden stumps for the votes of frackers while distancing himself from the Green New Deal or anything that sounds like free health care as a human right in the midst of a pandemic. 
outside of this often cartoonishly scary, almost parody of a, an election run-up, alternative voices and visions for the highest office in the land have not been heard. But this morning, we're going to change that. Joining me for On the Ground's Candidates Forum is Howie Hawkins, candidate for president for the Green Party USA, and Gloria LaRiva, candidate for president for the Party for Socialism and Liberation. Both are lifelong labor, peace, and racial justice activists, active in unions at their workplace, and for human rights of working people here and abroad. I welcome you both to On the Ground. Thanks for having me. Thank you for the invitation. Well, my first question for both of you is on the economic crisis. Since March, when the federal government finally reacted to the spread of COVID-19, more than a million Americans have applied for unemployment each week. Companies, most recently Raytheon, Boeing, Disney, and Charles Schwab, continue to lay off tens of thousands of workers. So what would you do as the next president inheriting what some experts say is really worse than the Great Depression? Let's start with you, Ms. LaRiva. I like being called Gloria. I think it's funny. <laughs> right. Okay. And you can well, call me Howie. That's fine. Oh, okay. All right. Well, in the immediate sense, even in this system, much can be done. Of course, we are for socialism in overturning the capitalist system, which has created much of the crisis. But right now, it should have been done in the very beginning to provide the adult population of the U.S. a guaranteed income per month so they wouldn't have to worry about going to work or searching for an income if it was not necessary. And for essential workers to be at least double to triple, depending on the wages they make now, for the work that is in food production and other essential means. This has led to a huge increase in people dying, now 227,000, and it is not slowing down. But essentially, the Defense Production Act was an important instrument to use in order to channel and harness the productive capacity of the country and executive power. That could very well be done. And of course, a national mandate on the issue of masks and uh, social distancing, which is essential to save lives and ultimately help the economy. Okay, and Howie? Well, immediately we need emergency action much stronger than the CARES Act was, much stronger than the HEROES Act, which the House passed but hasn't gone anywhere. So we need emergency relief in the form of unemployment insurance, housing guarantees, income guarantees, protection of jobs and small businesses. So the payroll protection program should have helped small businesses instead of cronies of the administration and the larger businesses with the legal resources to get to the front of the line. We should have had an emergency OSHA standard so people can work safely. We don't even have that yet. So people are going to work and getting sick because the personal protective equipment, the social distancing, and other standards that OSHA should have instituted as an emergency measure have not been instituted. And this pandemic and the lockdown has plunged us into a coronavirus depression. Now, to recover from that, we've been calling for an eco-socialist Green New Deal, which would create 38 million jobs caring for people in the planet. And that's the way to get out of this depression. I was the first candidate to campaign on a Green New Deal back in 2010, running for governor. And that was coming out of the Great Recession. So it was an economic recovery program as much as a climate safety program. And that's what we need now because that's direct government employment of people and making the things we need. The kind of thing this government has done a little bit of during the New Deal and particularly during World War II when the government took over 
a quarter of manufacturing capacity of the country in order to turn industry on a dime into the arsenal of democracy to defeat Hitler, Tojo, and Mussolini. We need to do nothing less through the public sector now to get out of this economic depression and also transform the economy so we stop emitting carbon and cooking the planet. So as a follow-up, Gloria, as we see what's happening all around us, you know, U.S. capitalism is in free fall. Socialism is demonized and attacked by both corporate parties and their corporate media. And have you gained any insights from your campaign about how the left breaks through disinformation, not only about socialism, but actually about world history? Well, I think it's very important to recognize the state that we're in in the last few years with the growing economic crisis that began before the pandemic and the campaign of Bernie Sanders in 2016 and 2020. We certainly have differences with especially his foreign policy. We're anti-imperialist. He's not. But the very fact that he was talking about healthcare for all and canceling student debt about creating jobs, taxing the rich, is something that resonated with millions of people. And the fact that he could call a rally of 10,000 people, thousands, 30,000 on a day's notice, shows the popularity of his ideas. And to talk about socialism, saying he was a socialist or a democratic socialist, I think really helped to lift the fog of anti-communism, which is almost like a religion in the United States all these decades. And and yet also many young people who are joining, certainly in our party, uh, for socialism and liberation and other movements who have lived capitalism. And to them, it's not working. It's a disaster for them. And I think that uh, we're coming to a big, big change in why our campaigns are very popular. This is why we're not getting any major media coverage. I mean, it's not an accident. It's not that they don't know us. They do not want the message of taxing the super rich, taking over their wealth, taking over the banks for social investment. It is really remarkable how receptive people are. Now, sometimes they say things that are like, one woman in a Walmart store, a worker said, no, we can't have socialism. That means more taxes. And when I said to her, ma'am, under socialism, you wouldn't be paying taxes because your labor is enough. And the rich, all their hundreds of billions of dollars just in this pandemic would be used for the people. And that really turned her around right away. She said, I like the way you talk. So, Okay. Well, I mentioned in the intro that COVID-19 is on pace to kill a quarter of a million people inside the United States before the end of November. So tell us what you would do differently from the Trump or Biden administrations to help turn around this titanic of misery. And uh, I'll start with you, Howie. Well, the COVID pandemic shows that the two governing parties in this country are presiding over a failed state. Obviously, Trump is a dummy, incompetent. He doesn't care about us. He's a loser. COVID won, and he wants to move on. But I think uh, Joe Biden is complicit. He's had the national stage since March when he got the presumptive nomination. He could have convened a socially distanced news conferences in Washington, D.C. with the White House press corps. He lives within commuter distance like uh, Andrew Cuomo did early in the pandemic here in New York. And he was AWOL. He was just letting Trump hang himself on his own words. But if you're in a position to make a difference and you don't, you're complicit in the result. 
Now, what I would have done if I was president is use the Defense Production Act to ramp up rapid testing, contact tracing, and isolating those exposed or infected. That would suppress community spread of the virus, and we could go back to work and school relatively safely. That's what organized societies around the world have done across the Pacific Rim, across Europe, many countries in the global south. But this country can't seem to get its act together on that. And that's what public health officials recommended. And Trump is so dumb, he decided he wanted us to go out, back out and die for the Dow because all he cared about was the stock market. And he could have been running on this as, you know, uh, one of his issues. Instead, he's running from it. But test, trace, and isolate, that's the program. Okay, Gloria? You know, in, in other circumstances, when there is a natural disaster in a community and companies like supply stores where, that sell light bulbs or batteries, there are laws and there are measures against profit gouging. And there's no better example of profit gouging than what has taken place with the 600 top billionaires of the United States. In the first nine weeks of the pandemic, from March to May 19, Mark Zuckerberg's wealth, personal wealth, increased 48%. And the wealth of Elon Musk, who called you know, lockdown measures fascist because he had to keep making his profits, his wealth increased by 48%. Tens of billions of dollars in nine weeks alone. And so they're profit gouging, Amazon to be sure. They have made hundreds of billions of dollars in this whole pandemic of eight months. They should have their wealth confiscated. That would provide for more than enough for free health care for people. And it's so outrageous that Joe Biden insists that we don't need a national health care plan. Oh, we'll improve Obamacare. Really? How? I, when people go into the hospital, they can come out with a million, two, three million dollars in medical bills. And 60% of all foreclosures are due to medical bills. So I agree with the issue of the Defense Production Act, which has enormous executive powers in order to harness, again, the productive capacity of the United States. And instead, Trump used it to force the packing house workers back to work with no safe conditions. Thousands have become ill. Many have died. And compare that to Cuba which is blockaded by the U.S., which has many, many difficulties in having had to shut down all its international tourism, only 128 people have died. That should be enough to say the difference between a socialist country and the richest capitalist country in the world. As a follow-up, Howie, China has less than 5,000 deaths, and Cuba, a tiny socialist country 90 miles from Florida, has only 120 deaths with many provinces in Cuba not reporting any new cases in several months. And Cuba has developed drugs and sent doctors all around the world to help treat people in other countries during the pandemic. Um, tell us how your policies relate to not only the pandemic, but your views on healthcare in general and cooperation with other countries. Well, healthcare should be a human right and a public service, not a buy or die commodity. So we're advocating for Medicare for all, but we go further than Bernie Sanders or Representative Jay Paul in that we want to socialize not only the payment of single public payer, 
and still leave delivery private, we want to socialize the delivery. So hospitals and clinics are publicly owned. The doctors, nurses, and other healthcare providers are salaried public employees, not people who try to maximize fees for service, to maximize income for their hospitals and medical organizations, which becomes an issue of quality of care because they're running people through fast to get more fees or adding unnecessary tests and treatments to get more fees. Comes an issue of cost control. You put them on salary so they can focus on delivering healthcare. And then we make the whole system community controlled. So it would be a community controlled national health service with uh, local health boards elected by the public. And then they federated the state and national level for overall coordination and planning. And in this pandemic, we got the so-called alternative telling Bernie Sanders in the last debate they had that Medicare for all is irrelevant to this pandemic. You know, the countries that have suppressed it, the spread of the virus, use the public health systems that they have to do that. And the United States doesn't have that system. That's why one reason why we're in such a mess that we are with 4% of the world's population and 25% of the COVID deaths. In terms of relating to other countries, we should not be sanctioning countries like Venezuela and Cuba in the middle of a pandemic. We should be trying to help them deal with it and enable them to get the resources they need. Okay, that was the voice of Howie Hawkins, candidate for president from the Green Party USA. I'm also speaking to Gloria Lariva. She's a candidate for president from the Party for Socialism and Liberation. And we're going to go to a brief break. This is On the Ground. Stay with us. This is Esther Ivarum, producer and host of On the Ground, thanking you for listening and for being a part of our audience. And I'm asking you to please partner with us in keeping alive this independent grassroots news program from Washington, D.C. Your fully tax-deductible donation of as little as $3 a month will help us keep lifting up voices of activism and resistance to corporate power and corporate media. So please go to our page at patreon.com forward slash on the ground show that's patreon p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash on the ground show where we post the shows and bonus material or you can see all the ways to support including end of the year giving and paypal on our website which you know is on the ground dot org thank you This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum, and this is our election forum with Howie Hawkins, candidate for president for the Green Party USA, and Gloria Lariva, candidate for president for the Party for Socialism and Liberation. Well, talking about the pandemic and the idea of justice for people, before the break makes me want to talk about foreign policy. Because even though there is a century-long pattern of the United States violating international law with 
wars of aggression, including in the Philippines, Korea, Vietnam, Iraq, Syria, and Libya, uh, this pattern has only been laid bare and ratcheted up by the real gangster moves of the Trump administration, officials like Mike Pompeo, John Bolton, and Elliot Abrams. And we all know that despite running a campaign of getting us out of wars, Trump has carried out a murderous hybrid war against the peoples of Venezuela, Iran, Palestine, and Yemen, imposing illegal sanctions, stealing the gold and assets of Venezuela, murdering General Soleimani of Iran. And just this week, a new report revealed that since Trump took office, the U.S. has directly killed between 86 and 154 civilians in Yemen. So what steps will you take to change the status of the U.S. as this rogue actor on the international stage and, and bully? Uh, what would be important elements of your foreign policy? And I'll start with you, Gloria. Yes, well, we have in our 10-point campaign program that we would shut down all the U.S. bases abroad, between seven, 800, many that we don't even know about because they're growing ever more in Africa, for example. All sanctions of some 70 sanctions being imposed on countries should be lifted, including Cuba, of course, suffering a 60-year blockade, Venezuela, whose oil and gold and money has been stolen by the U.S., and Iran lift that sanctions. And they need to have the access, by the way, to radioactive isotopes, which is one of the reasons why they were planning to enrich uh, uranium for producing nuclear energy, but also because they were denied, in violation of international law, the right to medical isotopes. And as far as Yemen, yes, dozens have been killed by the U.S. directly, but hundreds of thousands are dying of hunger and the war because the U.S. backs the absolutely dictatorial, brutal regime of Saudi Arabia. I think, though, it's important to understand that the foreign policy continues from one administration to the other, and it was Obama who first started the sanctions on an escalated basis against Venezuela. Under his administration, Libya was destroyed, which was trying to unite the African countries on a united financial, commercial and solidarity basis. Honduras, the president was overthrown, which led to the unraveling of some of the leftist processes in Latin America. But basically, we say that the people of the world are our sisters and brothers. There's no reason to have the Pentagon continue. It is a, an instrument purely for aggression and domination. We also reject, by the way, the China and Russia bashing. We do not consider either country the enemy. China has done amazing progress in providing for the people, in raising more than 850 million people out of extreme poverty. It's a remarkable achievement that we can even, cannot even hope to win under this system. I think the militarism is a big contributor to global warming as well. Okay, and Howie? Well, our, our foreign policy is mainly built around military wars, coups, and that's not about the peace and security of the United States people. That's about the security of the profits of U.S.-based global banks and corporations. So we're calling for peace initiatives, 75% cut in military spending, withdrawing from the endless wars in these 800 forward, forward military bases, pledging no first use of nuclear weapons, and then going to the other nuclear powers and saying, 
We're no longer a global military empire. We're no longer a threat. We want to negotiate complete and mutual nuclear disarmament. The Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists has their doomsday clock the closest it's ever been to midnight because the U.S. initiated what they call a nuclear modernization program, which is the deployment of new strategic hypersonic nukes and strategic arms and more tactical nukes in conventional forces with a crackpot military doctrine called escalate to de-escalate, as if you can use some tactical nukes in a conventional war and then de-escalate. Once the nukes start flying, they all start flying. Daniel Ellsberg called that the doomsday machine in his last book, it's automated. And we should go to those powers with world public opinion because this week, the new treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons, which 122 nations agreed to the text of three years ago, went into effect with the 50th nation signing on to it. Right. And that's what we should be uh, focusing those negotiations on. And the International Campaign for the Abolition of Nuclear Weapons got the Nobel Peace Prize forgetting that treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons, uh, the text approved three years ago. And hardly anybody in this country knows that because the corporate state media stenographers won't talk about anything the major parties won't talk about. And they're both behind this nuclear modernization program, which has destabilized the global balance of terror in nuclear weapons. So that's got to be, that should be a top campaign issue. It's not been discussed at all. All right. Well, Actually, um, one follow-up on foreign policy for you, Gloria. You know, no U.S. administration has attempted to prosecute former U.S. officials, past administrations for war crimes or crimes against humanity. Would you be willing to investigate possible war crimes and international crimes of the Trump administration, members of his administration, or past administrations? Well, absolutely. And, you know, a lot of people actually that I've met in the public who are saying that he should be in jail, I believe so as well. And people go, yeah, but he might get pardoned. Because that's what happens. That's what happened to Nixon. That's what happened with people like Kissinger, war criminals who were not only received the Nobel Peace Prize, but also became rehabilitated as a so-called statesman. Democrat and Republican has carried out genocidal wars. From Vietnam to Iraq to Afghanistan, I mean, you can name dozens of countries, Panama, Grenada, and, and they have blood on their hands, all of them. So I think the biggest justice, in addition to the individual prosecution and calling for the prosecution, is really to create a society where people can enjoy real peace and a decent, dignified life and not harming other people by the exploitation of others' resources. I often tell people that we live in the eye of a hurricane in the United States, and U.S. foreign policy in all the, the bands of the hurricane are killing people. Millions have been murdered by U.S. foreign policy, by war occupation sanctions. The Iraq blockade for 12 years, mainly under Clinton, but started under Bush. You know, I was there three times in Iraq. I made an award-winning film called Genocide by Sanctions, The Case of Iraq. And if the, if the American people had seen it, I am convinced that they would be revolted and they would be against U.S. foreign policy and say no more. But we live in a society where the media rules, the Pentagon rules, and 
it's a long uphill battle, but it takes perseverance. And yet I think with the Black Lives Matter struggle, we are turning the corner on an uprising that's going to envelop all of society on a broad, broad basis. We mentioned the possibility of cooperation between uh, nations to solve the crisis of the pandemic. And the other, obvious, the other obvious realm for international cooperation is the climate crisis, because the Earth is our common home. Here in the U.S., we're witnessing the busiest hurricane season ever. There are fires in the West and rising sea levels from Maine to Miami. Internationally, there are fears of methane releases in Siberia, uh, and that's news this week. And also news about the release of radioactive water from the Fukushima nuclear plant in Japan. So starting with you, Howie, tell us what urgent steps can be taken because we are already in climate crisis. It's not a future event. And in an international system of imperialism, capitalist exploitation of the planet, what can be done, what can be done within that system? It can't be done within the capitalist system. Capitalism is a system of competition and endless growth you can't balance it with a sustainable environment or a safe climate. So we're calling for an eco-socialist Green New Deal. We've done a detailed budget. It's the only detailed plan out there. It's a $27.5 trillion program over 10 years, emphasizing public enterprise and planning, particularly in the energy, transportation, and manufacturing sectors. So we can transform all sectors, not just energy production, but also manufacturing, agriculture, buildings, and transportation to 100% clean energy and zero to negative greenhouse gas emissions by 2030 in a decade. Because that's what the climate science says we need to do. And I think it's important to understand that Trump calls climate change a hoax, but Biden acts as if it's a hoax. What came out of the Biden-Sanders Unity Working Group on Climate was pretty much all Biden it's pro-fossil fuels. They say they're going to do carbon capture and sequestration, which they won't do. That's just a cover for fracking the hell out of the country for oil and gas and keeping dependent on particularly gas-fired power plants for decades, which will cook the planet. They're pro-nuclear for the first time in 50 years, when nuclear power costs two to three times more than most forms of solar and wind energy. They gave few details, but one they did, which kind of illustrates how they are not serious. They said they're going to uh, retrofit and power by clean energy 5 million buildings in four years. Well, there are 120 million, million buildings in the country. At the rate they're proposing, it'll take them 150 years to clean up the building sector. So it's not a serious program. And in terms of what we got to do internationally, you know, the U.S. should, and it's part of our uh, eco-socialist Green New Deal budget, is there's a green, global Green New Deal component where we will help other countries leap out of the 19th century fossil fuel age into the 21st century solar age. And that's a peace program as well as a climate program because we are a very wealthy country. We should be, instead of a global military empire, the world's humanitarian superpower and make friends instead of enemies. And that'll do more for the peace and security of Americans and everybody around the world than this uh, emphasis on the military, which is also one of the industries that is the most uh, polluting and emitting the most carbon. Okay. 
because I'm kind of running out of time and I want to skip Gloria, unless you have something urgent to add on the climate issue, I want to ask you about the uh, national uprising against racism. We witnessed this national, and I would say even international uprising against racism following the murder of George Floyd by Minneapolis police in May. And since then, there has been a backlash by the Trump administration, the right wing, law enforcement against protesters for justice. Even this week in D.C., after the a police-involved death of Karan Hilton, uh, protesters were arrested for being organizers um, against the state violence. Now what is happening is that those resisting state violence is part of the story. So where do you stand, Gloria, in terms of the calls to defund the police and community control of the police? We fully subscribe to that demand, and I don't know that it's really happened anywhere except some places with... um, a tiny amount of money that's probably been taken from other areas other than the police themselves. And yet this is an unprecedented movement. It is an uprising, as you said, that has great, great implications. It has shaken the foundation of white supremacy. Much more has to be done, but it shows the way. It shows that the struggle is what makes change and changes consciousness, is when people fight back against this repression. It is true. Uh, the acts of repression against the people in Portland, uh, some of our members and others in Denver were brutally arrested and faced actually decades in prison for peacefully demonstrating against the murder of Elijah McClain, a young 23-year-old in, Den- in Aurora, Colorado. But the other day, you know, Mr. Wallace Jr., a young man, shot to death in the back with some 14, 15 bullets. Mentally, he had a mental crisis. His mother was begging on TV. There's an average of three killings every day, the same rate as before. The only difference is there's been some prosecution of some of the police. But I don't think it's just Trump. I think it's Biden who boasted until he ran for president now that he was responsible for much of the laws that led to the mass incarceration. And this is Democrat and Republican, as well as Bill Clinton. So I think there is a lot of hope in this movement. And we call for jailing killer cops. That's one of our demands. But, you know, there's been this repression. The, the state apparatus of this government, the government fears an uprising, not only of people fighting racism, but of people fighting against the system. There's much that they're putting in place in anticipation of a working class uprising against the system and for a demand in a change in the system. So I think the Black Lives Matter is historic, to say the least. Well, uh, I want to close out with, um, I want to give you an opportunity, and I know I didn't put it on the rundown, but I want to give you an opportunity to make um, uh, a brief closing statement. And I want to preface that with saying that more than 79 million people have already had already early voted by Thursday. Um, October 29th. And I know that in terms of the 2016 election, you know, rather than investigate uncounted ballots uh, or, or thrown out ballots or their own failure to present policies to win over voters, the Democratic Party blamed the Green Party and, of course, Russia for their loss in 2016. So for both of you, I mean, if you can add this um, 
a comment on this in your in your statement, Howie. Um, what would you like to say about people voting their conscience in what is supposed to be a tight election here in 2020, uh, believing that they must vote for Joe Biden to vote against fascism? Well, for the Green Party, that's pretty rich coming from the Democrats who spend all their time trying to suppress the Green Party. That's suppressing the core of our First Amendment rights, free speech, petitioning the government for redress of grievances, freedom of the press, because that's how we get our word out. And the Democratic Party's trying to smash the Green Party, knock us off the ballot, increase the requirements to keep a ballot line. And they're, they're barking up the wrong tree. We're not the problem. The reason George Bush and Donald Trump became president was the Electoral College. We didn't do that. And it was only close because of massive suppression, particularly of the black vote. So that's what even made it close. That's what the Democrats should be focused on instead of trying to suppress the Green Party. So here we are. I think I want to say to progressives, you know, how are you going to use your vote? You vote for Joe Biden, you vote against the Green New Deal, against Medicare for all, against ending the endless wars. You know, I think if I'd have been in the debates and covered by the national media, I might be a contender in this election because we know from public opinion polls, people want a Green New Deal. They want Medicare for all. They want to get out of these endless wars. So whatever happens on Tuesday, well, I would say to the progressives, don't waste your vote and vote for Biden and tell him to take it for granted. Vote for the Green Party and make the political system deal with you. Otherwise, you just disappear. You get lost in the sauce. They don't know what you stand for. You voted for Biden. They don't know you're for Medicare for all or a Green New Deal. And then so after the election, we'll keep fighting for those issues, as well as uh, democratic reforms. Like instead of having the two parties administer their own elections and keep the competition out of debates and off the ballot, we should have independent administration of elections. We should have ranked choice voting so people can vote for what they want without worrying about helping their worst enemy. And this struggle will continue on November 4th and the days going forward. So I'm asking for people's vote, but that's just one day. And the next day we got to keep fighting. Okay, Gloria. Okay. Well, we know that people are voting in massive numbers, record numbers. It's hard to say what the election turnout will be, but certainly the people, all of them are trapped in a two-party system that's really for the capitalist system. And we're being told not only are these your only two choices, <clears throat> but this system is your only choice. And our election campaign broke through much of that in speaking to people all over the country, not just myself, but our many, many young members who gathered tens of thousands of signatures to get us on the ballot in 15 states. We had to petition in 15 states great accomplishment, mostly under the pandemic, done safe, because they believe. They believe in a future without profits. They believe in a future without police brutality, police murder, and poverty. And I think that this is a real turning point for us. The elections, the election system, from the fraud committed by Trump, from the creating chaos in the post office, to who knows what will happen on November 3rd, we will be ready in the streets, along with possibly millions of people, who knows? But I think that people are seeing, they may be voting in record numbers, but I think they're feeling more cynical than ever about the elections. And a lot of people were crushed by the defeat of Bernie Sanders, by the conspiracy of the Democrats, 
they will do everything they can along with the Republicans to keep their system in power. It's a big challenge for us, but we know that we stand with the working class and that our action will count more than ever after November 3rd. Okay. Well, this has been our election forum with Howie Hawkins, candidate for president for the Green Party. The website for Howie Hawkins and his running mate, Angela Walker, is HowieHawkins.us. And and also Gloria LaRiva. And we've also uh, been speaking with Gloria LaRiva, candidate for the president for the Party for Socialism and Liberation. The website for LaRiva and her running mate, Sunil Freeman, is lariva2020.org. Thank you so much for joining me today, Howie and Gloria, and good luck in the election. Thank you. Thank you, Esther. Take good care. And that will do it for today's episode of On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I want to thank my guests, Howie Hawkins and Gloria LaRiva, and also thanks to Chantel James and Thomas O'Rourke for helping with the show. You can check out all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. And you can reach out to us, support us there, and work with us. And you can also let us know you like the show on Facebook, Twitter, or on patreon.com at On The Ground Show. Our new podcast is On The Ground Show with Esther Averam, and that's On The Ground, W. Esther Averam, on all your podcast platforms. Our new podcast, our social media pages and website all have a protest sign with green lettering that says on the ground. If you don't have the protest sign with green lettering that says on the ground, you're on the wrong site. (laughs) So thanks to all those checking out the podcast. And don't forget to give us that nice rating on the podcast. The music we played this hour included Free by Stevie Wonder, a portrait of Doris riding with Boris by the Esporn Svensson Trio, And our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, take good care and keep raising your voice. Peace.